Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we critically analyze some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. And this is the fifth episode in our mini-season on the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. This week we'll be discussing chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, and things are heating up, so uh, would you mind giving us a quick recap of what happens in these chapters? So the games have officially begun, and the tributes basically scatter. Lamina puts Marcus out of his misery, basically. The mentors start sending food and water in. And then Mrs. Plinth goes to the snows because Sejanus is missing, and they see him in the arena. Then Dr. Gall makes Snow go into the arena to get Sejanus, and they are attacked by some tributes which leads Snow to brutally kill Bobbin. Dr. Gall then explains that humans are basically all animals and civilization disappears without control. The Plinths then announce that they are going to pay for the university tuition of the mentor of whoever wins the Hunger Games. Jessup tragically succumbs to rabies and Lucy Gray comforts him as he dies. And to close out the last chapter, Tigris and Coriolanus have received the information about how much their property tax will be. Yeah, so the games the games are going. And I definitely thought, especially, you know, with such a small arena comparatively, that it couldn't take very long, but things are actually kind of being, you know, more spread out than I thought they might have been. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if it's great for the tributes. I don't, there, there's no great situation or ending for this for the tributes. But it at least is not good for lucky Flickerman, who has to try to figure out how to keep these things engaging when absolutely nothing is happening. <laughs> I hope when the movie comes out that it's still the same actor. <laughs> that would and... be so great. It's just like he's not wearing a blue wig or something, but it's just him <laughs> it still. Totally be Stanley Tucci because he did such a good job. <laughs> oh, he was so perfect. I'd love that. But we should probably get into our quote before we continue talking about first impressions. So this quote comes from chapter 16, and it's after Snow and Sejanus have escaped the arena. And Dr. Gall comes in and talks to Coriolanus. What happened in the arena? That's humanity undressed. The tributes, and you too. How quickly civilization disappears. All your fine manners, education, family background, everything you pride yourself on, stripped away in the blink of an eye, revealing everything you actually are. A boy with a club who beats another boy to death. That's mankind in its natural state. Not womankind, but mankind. Oh, certainly not, yeah. Yeah. I mean, except (laughs) for her. (laughs) Definitely for her, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of the few times when, as I'm going through, I highlighted, like, a full paragraph, because this is clearly so, such a prominent idea of, I think, what they're trying to set up. Not necessarily to say that this is the lesson of the book, but that this is one of the kind of ideologies that they're they're tackling. Mm-hmm. It'll be really interesting to see where it goes because there are some parts with what she's saying here that I don't entirely disagree with. And not that I want to agree with her because she's really scary. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of people would fall into this when it when it comes to 
themselves or someone else, they'll choose themselves. And it's putting things in place so that you can't choose yourself in certain ways or you can't just override other people's rights. Again, like we talked in the last episode about ideas of people's individual rights, it's not something that's really acknowledged in the capital. So mm-hmm. she's not really advocating for that. It's not like, oh, so because people can be like this, we have to protect people, especially people who are disadvantaged in certain ways. For her, it's like, we need to hold the power and the districts are, are what we need to control. Yeah, and, and she's completely not seeing how there are institutions that are creating this situation. They could just not create that situation. Exactly, right? Yeah, and th- those are choices being made. And she's got this dark idea of humanity that we are defined by what we will do in our desperate situations instead of we are defined by what we choose to do to ensure that people are not desperate. So yeah, I think that that it's it's a compelling argument, especially for someone like Snow, but mm-hmm. it's also purposefully focused on one aspect of where you want to see the definition of humanity. Yeah, I mean... It- I would say that some of what she's saying is probably true, but the problem is it's a fallacy that this is how some people react in these desperate situations, so this is what needs to happen. When you're creating the desperate situation, Mm -hmm. the capital first created the desperate situation, which is why the districts rebelled in the first place, and now they're continuing to perpetuate that desperate situation. And it's also ignoring the fact that I don't think Sejanus would have done that Mm. in that circumstance. And so it's saying like all people are the same when that's obviously not true. Absolutely. A very good point. But what are some of your first impressions? Yeah, my first impressions have to do a lot with friendship and relationships. Hmm. Because right at one point, Snow thinks about how Sejanus thinks of him as his only friend. To which Snow thinks, imagine having no friends. And I thought that was such a, not only a a sad statement for Sejanus, but also was such a blinded statement by Snow, because he (laughs) also doesn't have any friends. Nobody actually knows him. Exactly, And the only person he's shared any vulnerabilities with that isn't in his family is Lucy Gray. And Mm -hmm. then he likes her. And then he also has this gross possessive thing. And their their relationship is so defined by the roles given to them as mentor and tribute that even though he can be vulnerable with her in ways that he can't with others, it's still so defined that it's not a real friendship. There's still such a hierarchy there ingrained in their statuses. And yeah, I mean, look back at what we were talking about last time where the only person that they could invite over to their celebration dinner was their black market supplier, right? Mm -hmm. Like, no one knows Snow. He doesn't have any real friends. So just seeing more of the way he perceives others and himself and some really interesting examples of how he's an unreliable narrator because it's all through his point of view. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was one of your first impressions? So my, my big impression was that I was like, getting more and more stressed by these chapters (laughs) mainly just worrying about Sejanus because I knew that Lucy Gray wouldn't die yet like if she's gonna die she wouldn't die yet Mm -hmm. but him I was just like who knows what she could do here so yeah I just 
I admire him so much for his compassion and his resolve. I've just embraced loving Sejanus at this point. I've tried to keep it at bay because I know something's going to be tragic with him. But I just had to capitulate because he's too great. <laughs> so seeing Snow like keep lying to him and manipulating mm. him and pretending like he cares about him when he doesn't and he thinks like these snide and mean things about him. It just keeps making me dislike Snow even more and just start to despise him. So now I've started in moments like that calling him Coriel Anus. Because <laughs> he stinks. He's a butt and I, I don't like him. <laughs> I like that, yes. Yes. But what about you? Do you have any others before we move on? Yeah, I was also thinking a lot about snow as a piece in the games he talks about how whatever gall tells him to do he has to do basically he and the other mentors they are all pieces in in the games in not the same way but in ways that interestingly reflect on the ways that the tributes are but he certainly has a very special place because you know she talks about how sending him into the arena was also a way to teach him a lesson and so it sounds like she's specifically grooming him for something i just i'm really curious as to kind of what she's what strings she's pulling and why and and again i'm i i'm just hopeful to kind of see where that is going to lead yeah definitely my assumption would be part of the whys that she's seen he is more ambitious and would sacrifice a lot to get what he wants. I mean, he went in the ride to the zoo and mm. because of him, some new things were instituted and she's getting what she wants out of him, which mm. is finding ways to make the games more sustainable through entertainment value. And I'm sure she can see in his thought process with the proposal that he turned in, like the type of ruthless way that he can think but also because he's vulnerable she probably knows that it would be easier to manipulate him and turn him into a new capital hunger games innovator yeah yeah exactly which he you know already is becoming Mm Mm-hmm. he is and it, it kind of makes me wonder if that's one of the reasons why dean highbottom gave him district 12 girl because he had been friends with his father and he knows how scary dr gall is if he's Mm. like if he's given one that it is considered the worst of the worst and this person dies really quickly she's not gonna have time to see him shine you know but i don't know We'll, we'll see what happens with him yeah it's an interesting theory i like that So let's go into our touch points. This is where we see how what we're reading in the book relates to the world that we're living in. So I have two different things that I was thinking about. And the first one is when they see Marcus's tortured body hanging by his wrists from a beam. Mm. And my mind automatically went to learning about the practice of crucifixion in Rome. Mm. Growing up Protestant Christian like I did, I was very clear on the idea of it, but I remember sitting in a class and just being even more horrified as I learned some of the specifics in a Greco-Roman history class I was in. And I think it's really interesting considering that there's so much about Rome that is kind of imprinted in the capital. 
So for people who were historically crucified, the victim was tortured through flogging and whipping and practices like that, and then nailed or tied up by their wrists to hang from wooden beams. And it could be days before they actually died because the cause of death was oftentimes asphyxiation once their body was honestly just too exhausted to be able to pull themselves Mm. up even slightly to continue to breathe. This was a type of public punishment that was given for insurrection or generally being determined, uh, you know, quote, enemy of the state, unquote, and was often used for people who were either enslaved or lower classes. This practice was meant to serve as a spectacle and a deterrent. Mm. And so I was just like, those are like almost all of the boxes for Marcus. (laughs) And yeah, I just, I found that fascinating and obviously horrifying because it it really is such a disturbing practice and, and why it's practiced. So that's why when Lamina says something to him and he responds and then she kills him, I was like, that, you know, is is an act of mercy Mm. because this could potentially go on for days. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the first thing that came to my mind was, of course, the religious symbolism, which is the most noticeable way that we see crucifixion in, in modern society. But you're absolutely right that that Roman connection, I think, is so poignant and such an important part piece of that that I didn't even think of. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, my second point is that when Sejanus put the breadcrumbs over Marcus's body, uh, Snow's reaction is just such a classic example of ethnocentrism. And if you listeners aren't familiar with the term, it's an anthropological term. It's basically evaluating other cultures according to the preconceptions of your own cultural standards. And basically you see your own way of life as the natural or correct one. And so Snow is thinking, if you ever need proof of the district's backwardness, there you had it. Primitive people with their primitive customs. How much bread had they wasted with this nonsense? Oh no, he starved to death. Somebody get the bread. And and primitive is such a loaded word. I was, yeah. Like the use of that in terms of Colin's writing is just perfect. Because, yeah, backwards and primitive. Like these are the ways that people think of other cultures when they just assume that their way of doing it is superior. And it's been a reason or excuse or motivating factor behind colonization throughout the last, you know, few hundred years of history. Exactly. It's this idea that we have to control their resources and quote unquote civilize these backwards people. Mm-hmm. And I just find it so fitting because since the beginning of starting reading the book, I've imagined Sejanus is Arab and... In college, like I studied some of the European imperialism in in the Middle East, or as now I guess should probably be called the Swana, Southwestern Asia and North Africa. Mm. And so when I got to this, I was like, oh my god, of course, like this is this is what the capital would do and think about others and their practices. So that was great writing, very sad and very uh, important though. Because we all have ethnocentrism, Mm -hmm. but we can't let it just go unchecked. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Such a good point. 
<laughs> thanks. Uh, but one more little thing that I don't actually really have to talk about much, but I really just loved when the student mentors were groaning about their student ID photos being used during Lucky Flickerman's live television reporting. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just, it's just such a human thing. Like, there's all of this more important thing, all of these more important things going on. It's like, oh, why'd they use that photo? I look so <laughs> bad. Like, was, that was just a beautiful moment. <laughs> That's true. But also, as someone who has had some pretty bad photo IDs, I can also understand. No, I can understand too. I mean, I've totally thought that before. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. But what about you? What are some of yours? I had a few. One was kind of going back to our quote that we had when Dr. Gall kind of starts talking about what she sees as the natural state of humanity and the need for a social contract. I was just like, are they still reading Rousseau in Pan Am? <laughs> you know, maybe. And, and yeah, that's the thing is maybe, you know, the, the idea of it being named for Rome and clearly harkening back to Rome shows that there is some sort of historical record that's been brought forward. And it just, yeah, it, it made me, again, kind of think about Panem in relation to our society and what it means when some histories are lost and some are kind of held up. And if a, a history of social contracts as being necessary for control is what's kind of maintained in the philosophy and ideology and history of a, of a civilization, then maybe that is going to affect the way that they govern. Absolutely. Which I think is interesting considering Dr. Gall talks about how we base how we govern off of what humanity is naturally like. And that's just patently not the case. Because if it <laughs> was, everyone around the world, every indigenous society and group and community around the world would have the exact same type of governance. So yeah, I just, I think that that's, that's a really interesting idea to, to think about what knowledge is elevated in, in that kind of society. Yeah, and I think, I think you're really on point here because I have the special Barnes & Noble edition of the book mm. and it has like some discussion oh, questions in the back and part of it starts talking about political philosophy, but it was hmm. like beyond where I had read and I was like, oh no, I don't know what they're talking about yet. <laughs> so um, we'll see as, as we get along how much more of that comes out. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, a couple other things came to mind though. One was the rabies outbreak that they talk about killing multiple people and being being a huge problem you know gasp apparently social problems exist when healthcare is not a priority in a society what, <laughs> you know including when we are instead funding wars instead of healthcare and the ability for people to live instead funding the police yeah exactly right so yeah that was just a, a pretty easy parallel to find <laughs> yeah but then also like even though the government is not doing what it should be in funding healthcare, then when a problem happens, like, oh, these dirty district kids brought it in, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, always. <sighs> and then I guess the last thing I'll go into now is just a quick discussion of the honorifics that are given to, to two characters. One is mrs plinth who is called ma or mrs plinth the entire time she's mm -hmm. never given a first name because for snow she's only important as the mother of sejanus or the wife of sejanus's father mm. and so yeah i just think that's interesting that continued in this far future you are known as mrs blank 
you know, you lose so much of your identity as a woman if you are conforming to these kinds of really sexist ideals that exist in, in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then the other person who also happens to be a woman is Dr. Gall, who is also always referred to as Dr. Gall. And she at one point introduces herself as Dr. Gall. She says, I'm Dr. <laughs> Gall. And it just made me think of, you know, I don't know many people who introduce themselves as Dr. Blank, right? <laughs> Especially outside of like a professional setting. But those who have, have tended to be people who are also very focused on status and oh, kind of yeah. throwing that around very intentionally in that way and i just i'm always super skeptical (laughs) why are you trying to assert yourself as a different status than me exactly why is this your intention versus like you know some of my favorite professors were like oh call me by my first name because they want to diminish that gap and that's in a in a space where there actually is a hierarchy right they are a professor but people Often outside of those spaces, people will be all like, oh, I'm doctor. And it's like, okay, because that still, still doesn't even give that much information other than that you've done a lot of school, but doesn't say what you're a doctor of, what you have actual expertise in. Right. She seems like she's an expert in being sociopathic and <laughs> doing experiments on human beings. She does seem pretty good at that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But that should probably wrap up our uh, our touch points. Why don't we head to our Back to the Future segment, where we discuss this book through the lens of the original Hunger Games trilogy. What were you thinking there? Yeah, so just super quickly, I couldn't not mention when Dill, one of the tributes, died in the arena. And it said her body convulsed with a final violent bout of coughing. And a gush of blood soaked her filthy dress. Coriolanus felt unwell. The blood pouring from her mouth both horrified and disgusted him. And I just have to mention it because this is how he dies. Mm. He. Oh, wow. Yeah. They said either he choked on his own blood because he had been coughing it up. Mm -hmm. Or he had gotten trampled by a stampede that happened after Katniss killed coin so yeah it was just a foreshadowing moment wow yeah i did not pick that up that's so good yeah right oh but on something that's a little more meaty i thought it was really interesting that all of the student mentors shook hands with felix after dill had died and told him that he did a good job mentoring and and they actually meant what they said because the day had cemented the mentor bond in a brand new way. Mm. They were members of a special club that would dwindle down to one, but always define them all. Mm-hmm. And that just made Hamish's experience of watching Victor's die in the 75th Hunger Games. And obviously after that, it just made that be so much more striking and sad i mean we know it's sad but when you think about the bond that that these people have formed with each other some of them had mentored alongside each other for years and some of them became mentors at an even earlier age than these kids these Mm -hmm. 18 year olds which still seems like such a young age to be dealing with this and yeah he was bonded with chaff and finnick and johanna and like through their experience of pain and stress and despair and coping, they were able to trust each other, even in the capital's world of Penem. 
so yeah, I just, I saw that and thought about how bonding that experience of being in this terrible position you don't want to be in would actually be. Yeah. I also was thinking about Lucy Gray's kindness to Jessup as he dies, and Hmm. it reminded me of both Katniss singing to Rue and Peta talking to the more feeling woman from District 6 about colors as she died. Yeah. It just, it wasn't about telling them any last words. It was about this person who's dying and helping ease them into death, thinking about more beautiful things. And that moment with Peta and the more feeling woman is one of my favorite moments in the books because of how beautifully that death is dealt with and Hmm. yeah just Lucy Gray's kindness even though it's been a terrifying experience to have him be on your side and then suddenly he's not acting like himself and will potentially attack you and then her just of course I can't leave this person alone to die so yeah I really liked that yeah, I think that that was really powerful. And, and Lysistrata noting it, saying, mm-hmm. please don't let him die alone, I think, showed that this is a poignant moment, not just in defiance of the capital, but just because if you see the humanity of someone and you see them experiencing that kind of pain, the idea of them having some comfort during it is is so powerful. Yeah, and I love that Lysistrata after that, during her interview, is like, he was a good person. Not like a dog, like a person. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. And oh, that she so told Snow, yeah, I knew that he was never going to win because he mm-hmm. would have died protecting Lucy Gray. Yeah, it actually it reminded me a bit about how PETA obviously wants to protect Katniss no matter what until he is brainwashed into being dangerous to her. Mm. And Katniss having to navigate that and seeing him as a threat, but then also being sympathetic to him, especially after she really comes to her that it's not his fault. And obviously their relationship is much closer, but It's still, I think this is a kind of microcosm version of her still having compassion and care for someone who is a threat and is a threat not necessarily by any ill intent, but still is a threat that they have to deal with. And, you know, I wonder if they're going to go into how the capital audience responded to that, because I think that's really powerful in the same reasons it's powerful in the original books right why we're so compelled by these multi-chapter versions of these events (laughs) even expanded out from there absolutely yeah did you have another you wanted to share yeah so i was thinking about when sejanus is in the arena and he says that dying here is the only way he might possibly be able to make a statement oh yeah such a great line And to me, it just had hints of Peto wanting to think of some way to show the capital that they didn't own him. Yes. And not let them turn him into something that he's not. Just that deep conviction in someone so young and for them to see the bigger picture than only the kind of pain that they're personally going through. I think is so admirable and I think so unique. And so that really reminded me of PETA a bit and kind of also touch point wise, what Sejanus does reminds me a bit of self 
immolation, hmm. which is like a person killing themselves, often through burning as a form of political protest or religious devotion. Yeah. And which most recently we've seen in the world uh, in Tibet or during the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. And that type of idea of I will die as political protest for what's going on and the injustice of what's going on to bring attention to this because this is the most important thing I can do with my life. That's just such an intense thing for an 18-year-old to do. Ugh, his, his commitment, I just, I admire so much and it's staggering and I love him. Yeah, yeah. It's it's such an important moment. And I think it's interesting because there's clearly despair involved where he thinks that there's nothing else that he can do against this awful system mm -hmm. other than this. Yeah. But it's also idealism of what can I, what, what is the best thing? And so it's not just a kind of suicide because he wants to die. It's also utilitarian in a way. And uh, I just, I, yeah, fascinating. But you, you mentioning all that honestly made me start thinking about parallels between Snow and Sejanus and Katniss and Peeta, where mm. we see characters who have a relationship that is close and at times forcibly close, where one has stronger feelings than the other. <laughs> at least yeah. one of them has to fake certain feelings. You know, Sejanus clearly, I think, here exemplifies Peta in, in really interesting ways, as you said. And then you could say that Snow exemplifies kind of Katniss has more of a self-centeredness, certainly, about her. Uh, of course, she also is compassionate, which Snow is not. But Well, I mean, that's the thing. This, this wasn't the line in the, the book, but in the movie, when Peta had been talking about that, she said, I just can't afford to think that way. Because mm. she has a family to be thinking about who will starve to death, likely, right. if she doesn't get home. And, you know, a lot of their interactions with the world were influenced by those experiences. And Snow would also say, I can't afford to think that way. Mm. Although, yeah, for him, he's the one who's being taken care of. Because, <laughs> <laughs> obviously... Tigress isn't going to let him starve to death because mm -hmm. she's great. And also, I mean, he he could afford it, right? He could get a middling job and just not achieve whatever success he wants to get, right? It's it's his ambition that makes him say that he can't afford his it. His pride Certainly can't he, afford it. Exactly. Yes, his, his material circumstances are bad, but they're also bad in part because he is putting it all on the line in order to achieve what he wants to achieve. Yeah. True. But what about you? Do you have any more? Yeah, one last one is just that when they're talking about how Lucy Gray was wearing her rainbow skirt, it reminded me that there's no uniforms yet for the tributes in the games. Mm -hmm. And it made me think we see some of the decisions of how the games change in this book, and it made me think of how that decision comes about. Is it that they want a greater aspect of fairness? You know, some clothing might offer better protection or camouflage or whatever else it might be. Mm -hmm. Or is it just another aspect of control? Or is it a mix of those? You know, this is such a proto version of what we see later on in the Hunger Games. And every single one of those changes had to have a conversation about it at some point. Yeah. Well, and it could also be once they enter the arena, they're not individual people anymore because it's exactly. a lot easier yeah. to see people kill each other when they're not differentiated. 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that all that is is interesting. Yeah, another thing that I was thinking was interesting was that being allies with the tribute from your district wasn't a rare, rare thing yet. Mm. I think probably part of that is because they haven't mentioned any prize that the victor wins yet. Yes. So it's not like if I win, my family will benefit from this. Yeah. So many of them are pairing up and that was not the case at all. I mean, it was an odd thing for Katniss and Peeta to do, which is also interesting. Oh, there's so, there's so much. It would just be interesting to think about what Cinna knew and what Cinna had access to and if he had researched anything from like early games and saw solidarity like what solidarity could mean because he was the one who had them dressed exactly the same he was the one who had them hold hands at the opening ceremonies and always be presented as a unified group so yeah just oh so many questions there really are (laughs) So we should probably go to our final segment, our our ruminations. What are you ruminating on as you go through the book? Yeah, so I, part of it goes back to our the the scene that our quote came from at the beginning of this episode when Dr. Gall was saying that Snow's experience in the arena was transformative. And mm-hmm. I was just kind of wondering if that was true. Part of me feels like it's just activating his top priority of self-preservation and self-promotion that seems to have always been there and so yeah I'm just kind of wondering like is the transformation just that now he can see it clearly in himself and he'll start to embrace it instead of at times maybe being uncomfortable with those parts of himself so yeah, I'm just kind of interested to see how Snow is gonna deal with these ideas moving forward because he still he didn't want to see when the cameras panned over to Bobbin's body. Mm. It said the only time he was glad for what he had done was when he thought about Lucy Gray and how there was one last person that would potentially kill her. So it'll be interesting to see how he sorts through this information as the series goes on. I agree. That's definitely something that really struck me was at times he felt queasy about his actions, but it didn't certainly seem transformative yet in, in any real marked way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the other thing I'm thinking about is just how fascinating that three tributes died from actually no conflict at all. I mean, that's outside of the ones who died in the bombings, you know, like Dill with tuberculosis or Jessup mm. with rabies. And it just has me thinking of the changes that happen by the time Katniss gets to the games and that in the capital they're so well fed and they're made up and all of these extra things that are just not happening at all right now. And when you're not seeing emaciated kids or kids that have already, some of them have died before the games even start, when that's not there, then you see district kids dying by killing each other and so it doesn't show that the capital's the one killing them Mm. it'll just be interesting to see if more and more things like that come out because in past chapters you know you see the tributes in shackles and that's Mm. completely gone they don't want them to look like prisoners anymore by the time you get to Katniss's time and so it'll be interesting to see what more 
is being produced and pulled back to change the image surrounding the games. Yeah, that's such a fascinating distinction where 10 years out from the war, the Hunger Games to the capital is still about retribution and still Mm -hmm. about control. 64 years later, the Hunger Games aren't about that anymore. Now the Hunger Games are about entertainment. And the control and the retribution, that's still the framing to the districts of the capital. The vast majority of what they're doing is so much more about that entertainment aspect. And that's just not there yet. And so, yeah, losing a a tribute before the games started in the 64th Hunger Games would be seen as loss of entertainment. Whereas here, it's just seen as, okay, more of them died. And yeah, that's that's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I think my rumination is about Snow's motivation going forward, because I think that the book started with him just wanting to be successful in the capital. But then so much of the first half of the book is about him starting to feel for Lucy Gray and wanting her to win for her own right and really caring about her becoming the victor so that she could survive Mm -hmm. and possibly even have a relationship with him afterwards. But now that the plinth's prize is there, where Mm -hmm. if she wins, he directly gets what he most desired, at least until this tax pressure situation came about. How is that going to affect his motivation? He, I even saw it starting already in the, this last chapter where he starts thinking about how he needs her to win so that he can get this prize. Mm-hmm. Where it's not just he needs her to win because he wants her to survive. It's this is his key to the next step in his ambition. Yeah, I think that tracing that is going to be really fascinating because I, I think that Snow's limited and specific compassion for people is good because any compassion is good. Seeing that jut up against his more selfish ambition is going to be interesting to see even his limited compassion or his focused compassion, how strong that is when it comes into conflict, even metaphysical conflict, with his own ambition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to manipulate money out of the plinths to pay for the taxes but we'll see what Mm. happens (laughs) oh of course i've never said sejanus is my best friend to his face well he is i love him i would do anything for him Ugh, despise you (laughs) (laughs) hasn't even happened and i know are you not a fan of snow Is he not your favorite character? No. Do you not love him? He's a a very interesting character in this, but (laughs) we know how he turns out, and we see all of the little seeds of that. Mm -hmm. So I assume he's going to do the worst things to the characters that I care about. (laughs) I think a a safe assumption to make. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to wrap up this week's episode. Next week, we'll be continuing our miniseries on the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, covering chapters 18, 19, and 20. If you want to get more involved with our discussions as we read through, you can join us on Patreon, where we're having lively discussions about quotes and characters and themes that we're seeing throughout, and you should be a part of it. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. And... Because we talk way too long about this book, (laughs) I'm starting to add little conversations that I have to cut to keep the time a manageable listen to our Patreon. So you can still get the little extra conversations there. That's just great content. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> if you'd like to contact us otherwise, you can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Till then, geek, geek out! out.